This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bioproven. Get what you paid for. The nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. Dan Glickman served as President Bill Clinton's Secretary of Agriculture. He recently authored a book that reflects on lessons learned in politics and in the presidential cabinet and much more. He shares the funny stories like playing golf with the president or being named the designated survivor in case of a disaster during the State of the Union address. And he shares insights on what's going well and not so well in the world and what we can do to improve the situation. You'll enjoy hearing some of his stories on this edition of the show. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside. It's brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. In 2020, I had the chance to use a new corn nitrogen product firsthand in my fields, Pivot Bio Proven. Pivot Bio Proven adheres to the root of the corn plant, creating a mutually beneficial nitrogen generating partnership that stays strong all the way through harvest. It's the weather resistant and sustainable way to achieve more predictable, more productive yields than ever before. Our 2021 trial here on the farm is well underway, and I'll continue to share some of my thoughts as we move through the season. We'll be looking at how Pivot Bio Proven can help supply corn with the nitrogen it needs throughout the season, and that hopefully means the use of less synthetic nitrogen in the future, saving us money while still supplying the corn and nutrients it needs. Pivot Bio Proven may change the way you think about nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Many of you will remember Dan Glickman's time as U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. Perhaps you may also remember him serving several years in the U.S. House of Representatives prior to that. But maybe you didn't know that Glickman is a bit of a comedian, looking for the funny moments in everyday life and using humor as a way to break down barriers and get things accomplished. Not only does he have some interesting stories to tell, but he also shares advice on what we can do to help improve the current political climate and find ways to move agriculture forward in the process. Former Secretary of Agriculture Dan Glickman joins me, and he is laughing at himself. Uh, at least that's the title of his new book, his uh, education in Congress on the farm and at the movies. I'm excited to have this conversation, and we'll cover a lot of ground here. But uh, first of all, Mr. Secretary, thanks for uh, joining us. Tell me about how and why uh, the new book uh, now. What inspired you to begin uh, writing and sharing some of your stories? Well, I, I I would not be telling you the truth if I just decided this in the last few months. I've been working on this for a long time, but I decided that now is the time for a couple reasons. One is I've been frustrated, frankly, with uh, the toxicity in American politics. Uh, although things seem to be getting a little better in the last few months, but but and 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 how uh, humor is so important as part of our. American life and how our politicians today are, are rather humorless. And so I thought I'd write a book about my own experiences and the various things that I've done in my life and how self-deprecating humor has both helped me and gotten me out of trouble. And I thought it might be useful for people, uh, both political people and non-political people, to maybe uh, learn about some of those experiences. Well, I think it is. Certainly the book uh, lends itself to some advice, perhaps for all of us in today's world. I want to go back to 
let's go back maybe to the early 70s. You know, you're beginning to run for Congress. And as you describe in the book, you are a Jewish kid growing up in a pretty conservative state. And you are going to end up running as a moderate Democrat. And, and of course, you win in 76. Do you think you could win that type of race today because how politics have changed? Describe the climate because you were out there knocking on doors and, and really connecting with people. But how would Dan Glickman be able to run today versus in 1976 when you guys started? You'd have to run a revolutionarily different campaign. First of all, today, it's money, money, money. So when I ran for Congress in 1976, my campaign over a whole year cost about $100,000 and my opponent, who was a then-sitting congressman, spent the same. Today, you'd almost have to spend $100,000 a day. I mean, you'd have to spend 3 to $5 million to run this kind of race, which meant that you couldn't go door-to-door like I did. I walked 35 to 40,000 homes and walked to rural areas because you have to be on the phone raising money all the time. And, um, and then the other thing is, is that uh, Iran is kind of a moderate, centrist, Democrat in a, in a state that leaned Republican. And, um, and today, I, I just really doubt that I'd be able to, to run in that capacity. Today, you have to either be way on the left or way on the right to secure your party's base in order to win a primary to get into a general election. Well, when I ran, I could run as a, in the middle um, uh, because that's where, by the way, most major decisions are made and build bridges with the other party. And it's just harder to do today. It certainly is. And, you know, in the book, you talk about that quite a bit and, and how humor helped you through that. You have several stories about, you know, you didn't necessarily grow up uh, on the farm every day, but yet you used humor and even your Jewish background to really break down a lot of barriers and connect with farmers and, and folks in agriculture, plus a, a lot of other uh, folks as well. But that, that humor really helped you break down those barriers, didn't it? Well, you know, it's very funny that I tell a lot of stories. I went out, I remember I went out to West Texas early in my career and, and, and they, and, and when I was a secretary and they hadn't had rain for months. And I think they may have had a half inch of rain in Lubbock uh, over about a four month period of time. And so I, I, I took some meteorology courses in, in, in college. And so uh, I could see that maybe there was a low pressure trough moving through. So I, I, I spoke to a group of people and, and I said, I, I smell rain in the air. And that night they had three inches of rain. And the next morning uh, I met a bunch of the county commissioners um, at the breakfast. And one of them said, well, now, now we know why they call your people the chosen people. I said, trust me, it wasn't, it wasn't divine intervention. But anyway, it, but I learned to kind of use humor in a, in a positive way. And I also found it very easy in farm country and agriculture country to it, it allowed you to be yourself, allowed you to be authentic. And today, a lot of politicians, I don't think, have those attributes. Do you think that is because, as you mentioned, the polarization of politics? But could a person who wants to take that route and really try to, to be a consensus builder, somebody in the middle, is it just simply too hard for them to get elected now? And if so, how do we ever get back to where we were? Because it looks like our country right now certainly needs some people that can bring two sides together. Well, I think it could be done in a couple of ways. Our congressional districts have been so gerrymandered that they are very safe Republican or safe Democratic districts. So what happens is, is that if you run for office, especially in the primaries, 
you don't have to appeal to people on the other side. You just have to appeal to your own base. And that means that you get, to use a football analogy, you're always between the end zone and the 20-yard line on either side as opposed to being between the 40-yard line and the 40-yard line. So if we could make redistricting more open and more bipartisan, then people would run in districts that would have a closer representation of Republicans and Democrats than we do now. And that way you'd have to appeal to the other side more. Uh, I think most, I think members of Congress today are just as good and talented as they've ever been. But the system of, of, re, of how we district, redistrict uh, uh, congressional districts, coupled with the amount of money in politics, coupled with the nature of the media today, which is you either have media on the right or media on the left. There's not much media in the center. And I, I think that uh, causes a, a, a divisions that I didn't see 40 years ago. You know, by the time we got up to 1994, and certainly we're going to get into your term as uh, Secretary of Agriculture, how much had politics changed simply from 76 to 94? You talk about that in the book, but certainly the climate had changed and simply how people looked at different issues and the media and, and their involvement and so forth. Uh, a lot had changed by the time you got to 94, hadn't it? Yeah, I think that, uh, A, there was just an explosion in the amount of money in politics occurred in the mid-80s, late-80s, early-90s. So, uh, you know, even my own race in 94, which I lost, I spent about five times as much as I did when I ran the, the, the first time. And then a lot of the social issues became really bigger issues, issues like gun control and abortion. These issues were not such big issues back in the 70s. They became much bigger issues, you know, in, in, in the 1990s. And um, and then the, we started to see the nature of the media change and it, it, social media, use, use of the Internet. And that really didn't happen until maybe around 2000. But it started. And and um, when I ran for office, there were three networks and my and local newspapers and local newspapers were really critical places where people would get information about what was happening in the world. And today you just see the demise of local papers, or if not the demise, they just they just don't have the resources to communicate with uh, with people like they used to have it. And that hurt because when you when you didn't have local coverage, uh, all you got get is national coverage, which tends to be very divisive. In 1994, you lose a race, but you perhaps gain the job, as you describe, maybe of a, of a lifetime. Were you surprised when you get a call from Leon Panetta and the White House that they, they want to make you a member of the cabinet? Well, I would have given up my House seat voluntarily to become Secretary of Agriculture, because that's a dream job. But, uh, you know, I, so when I lost my race, I was thought uh, I had about two or three days of depression. And then I, my dad said, get up, get out of there and start looking for a job. And so um, I, I, you know, as a, as, a, as a parent who was raised in the depression, he, he didn't have any excuse for just hanging around and being depressed. So, uh, so I was looking for a job and, um, uh, but Leon Panetta was the white house chief of staff and he and I were elected the same year and Al Gore was the vice president and he would, I were also elected in the same year. We we're in the same class. So, the then Secretary of Agriculture, Mike Espy, had announced his uh, resignation, and so President Clinton was looking for a replacement. So uh, Gore and Panetta knew me from Congress, and they recommended me, and then I had the support of Bob Dole, 
who was the Senate majority leader at the time, who was strongly uh, impactful in getting me that job. And it all happened within like a two to three week period of of time. And uh, timing is everything in life. And in this case, I was, uh, unfortunately, Mike Espy went through his problems. He was largely exonerated. But, um, uh, you know, I just had the right people. Garth Brooks has has this song, I Got Friends in Low Places. Well, I had friends in high places and they were the right (laughs) friends, you know. Right, right. Well, in in 94, then you become the United States uh, Secretary of Agriculture. At that time, when you took, you know, stepped into that office, what do you feel like were some of the biggest issues there? You know, you mentioned in the book that that was just the beginning of some of this talk about organic farming and GMO. Certainly they'd been around. But that was just beginning to get big. What were some of the biggest things that were confronting you when you stepped into that office? Well, uh, I'd say that uh, we, we went through a period of low commodity prices and it wasn't quite as bad in 1995, but it got really bad. I remember that poultry prices were depression era levels. So we had we had we had a we had a, a period of fairly low prices and had to deal with that. We had natural disasters, uh, floods, droughts, that that kind of thing. Organic and and the GMO issues were became big, and you know you see still see some of those issues, although they're not quite as big as they were before. And then I had this issue involving discrimination against African-American farmers, which uh, um, I, I, during my years in Congress, I had really no knowledge of. And that became a big issue that, that I had to deal with. And then finally, food safety. Um, so uh, we had some E. coli and salmonella outbreaks and people died. And, and there was a whole resurgence of the government involved in, in food safety activities. USDA is a great agency. It has amazing jurisdiction over, uh, uh, oh, and the final thing, I'm sorry to, to ramble a bit, is the U.S. Forest Service. Well, I'm from Kansas, and I would have to tell you, well, we have some trees in Kansas. We don't have very many forests at all. And the Forest <laughs> right. Service is the largest, the largest part of USDA. It has 40% of the workforce of the Department of Agriculture. And so, uh, I had to deal with a whole litany of timber cutting issues uh, in Alaska and out west and in the south as well. And I had to really speed up my learning process uh, that I had not uh, engaged in during my time in Congress. Sure, sure. You know, I, I jotted down some things that I wanted to ask you about because it's certainly called laughing at yourself. And you had uh, plenty of things where you could, you know, sit back and, and chuckle. January 20th, 1997. Uh, tell folks why that's important, because was that as close as you got to the presidency in, in some ways, the January 20th of 1997? You know, I could have been president if there had been a national catastrophe. But uh, and then my, I told my wife this, and she said, "Well, good luck on that one." Uh, you know, your spouse is always telling you what you probably don't want to hear. But um, uh, so every state of the union, they have a designated survivor, and they pick a cabinet secretary. Usually, not uh, state or defense. They usually pick what I say one of the more important cabinet departments, like the Department of Agriculture. So they picked me, and I had to leave Washington, and I went up to New York to visit my daughter. And I had the military with me and a a contingent of about eight or 10 people plus Secret Service. And so we went up there and I watched Bill Clinton give his State of the Union message because they don't want you in Washington in case there's some horrific attack that takes place. They want you outside. So uh, Bill Clinton is prone to making long speeches and 
the speech was supposed to be 40 minutes, and I think it was about an hour and 40 minutes. And after it was over, I took my daughter to dinner, and the security left because I said I didn't need them any longer. And there was this giant sleet storm in New York, and we got out, and there was no, there were no cabs, and there was no such thing as Uber or anything else. And we walked about 13 blocks in a sleet storm back to her apartment. I commented, I said, you know, three and a half hours ago, I was potentially the most powerful man on the face of the earth. And we can't even get a cab, you know, so it's a good lesson about life. The the ups and downs can come when you don't expect them. You know, you mentioned in there that the designated survivor that they have whenever there's a State of Union address has most often either been the Secretary of Agriculture or the Secretary of the Interior. Is that right? They've been picked the most? Yeah, and Ag and Interior have been the most, but Commerce has been up there as well. And of course, it's a different world today. Uh, this was pre-9-11. So uh, they, I don't think that the uh, Secret Service and other folks gave as much a thought to the actual reality that the entire government would be destroyed in some massive attack. And so my, my security was, there, there was security there, but it wasn't like it is now. I mean, I can tell you now they have they have really upped the game on the designated survivor and they, they protect that survivor much more than I was protected. Plus, they now have a designated survivor, I think, for Congress as well. So it's a different world today. It is. It is. You know, another uh, fun story was uh, playing golf with uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, did you learn to not do so well when you played golf uh, after your first uh, time shooting well against him? Well, when you uh, I, when they called, President Clinton's office called and said they wanted to know if I uh, – wanted to uh, play golf and I did and so I went and played with him my dad told me whatever you do don't beat him don't beat him if you want to keep your job so I we played golf at, at, actually at Andrews Air Force Base and and uh, I'm, I played golf in high school in Wichita but I'm not a great golfer mid-80s or something like that and so but the first hole I got a par and the second hole I hold it from 175 yards a par four or, and went in the hole and everybody started screaming, and I thought we were under attack. And the first thing President Clinton says, well, let's make sure that's your ball in the hole. <laughs> and so I got a two. And then the next hole, I got a birdie. So I was par eagle birdie after three holes. And then my dad, I pictured my dad saying to me, don't beat him. And so the next six holes, it was bo double bogey, triple bogey, double bogey, triple bogey. And so I, I, I ended up okay. But he, I've seen him, every time I see him, I, see, I don't see him all that often, he says to me, he says, how's your golf? Got any more eagles lately? And so he hasn't forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm interested in your reflections on President Clinton. I had a chance to, to meet him, and you talk about that ability to connect and, you know, certainly folks have different politics and that colors how we decide to, to look at different presidents and so forth. But you certainly served with a president that could connect with people. And you talk about that quite a bit in the book. You know, he's the kind of guy that would look you right in the eye. A lot of politicians will be looking around, seeing who else is there. Maybe somebody's more important. And, you know, I know he wasn't a perfect president. He had some obviously some personal issues that plagued him but but uh, on a one-on-one -on -one basis I never met a man who could engage people from the very poorest to the very richest it didn't matter to him you know he treated people uh, you know extremely well he was also kind of 
the proverbial good old boy. He came from this small town in Arkansas, and he probably knew more about agriculture, farming, and rural America than any president in modern history, maybe even since Lincoln, because he grew up in that environment. And I, and I remember that he used to, at, at once, I mean, when I would see him, he would ask me, what am I going to do about the rice loan rate? Now, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, can you imagine any president asking uh, his agriculture secretary what he's going to do about the rice loan rate? And so I had to, I had to bone up a lot uh, to, to be there. But it was useful to have a president who knew and understood agriculture and rural development. Uh, I think that's been fairly rare. You know, to, to kind of wind up, I want to go back to where we started. You, you mentioned about the, the era of, of politics that we're in now. Give me some hope, because I think a lot of us feel like that the things have changed a lot in the, you know, however long we want to talk about here. And we wish that we could all come together, whether it was as politicians, but just as Americans. It seems like sometimes we have a lot of arguments and maybe they get into social media and all different types of place, but places. But, you know, I know that you established even a, a center for a political humor at Wichita State to maybe help us through some of this. But what would you have to say that gives me hope that, hey, we can do this and what we should all be doing to try to make that happen just as, as American citizens? Well, you know, I was very lucky because in Kansas we had Bob Dole, Pat Roberts, and me as federally elected officials or federally appointed officials at the same time. And we were all involved in agriculture, but we all had pretty good senses of humor. And we worked across the aisle, and it was a model that I think uh, – other people used to see that, you know, that we could, we, we could work together. Um, uh, you know, I, I tell you, it is, it is worrisome because, you know, when I saw what happened on January 6th and, you know, and I, I saw what happened when there was all these issues about the Electoral College not certifying the victory of, uh, of President Biden, I thought to myself, you know, we're, it, this thing's really gone on, going off the cliff if we're not careful. I mean, our, our democracy is not deemed to last forever unless we continue to work at it. But I, I will say this. I think that uh, uh, I think things are actually getting a little better right now. I noticed there was a Pew poll that showed that there was uh, a jump up in public support for Congress, which surprised me. But in the last uh, several months, I think that the President uh, Biden's tone is uh, quieter and softer and more moderate people will, will still disagree on issues, but um, but I think we just need to lower the rhetoric, the level of hostility. And then I, I've worked at, when I was at the Aspen Institute with lots of younger members of Congress, newer members of Congress. Most of them are, are just as highly qualified as they ever were. There are a few uh, strange ones in the group, but um, so you know I, I think our political system is still pretty resilient. But the, the events of January 6th did scare the heck out of me and ought to scare the heck out of the American people. Mr. Secretary, I appreciate the time. Your book, uh, Laughing at Myself, My Education in Congress, On the Farm and at the Movies, I'm sure folks can find that wherever books are sold, as they would say. Is that right? And, and at the University of Kansas Press, it's a place that they can get it. And, and your local bookstore probably will have it. Hopefully they'll have it. So um, and of course, Amazon has everything.
but uh, um, I, 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 you know. So anyway, uh, wherever they can get it, uh, uh, I think it's a it's a fun read, if nothing else. That's right. Well, Mr. Secretary, again, thank you so much for your time and, and sharing about uh, how a little laughter helps us through uh, a lot of life, but even politics and, and your life as well. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Today, Glickman is involved in several nonprofit groups, many of which focus on issues in agriculture and hunger. He is not a lobbyist, but he does try to assist in the world of agriculture when asked, both here and abroad. I appreciate you joining us either on your local radio station or via the podcast. Remember to follow Farm in the Countryside on Facebook to get more info on the show. And you can find our daily American Countryside broadcasts on Facebook, too. You can also follow me on platforms like LinkedIn or Twitter, where I'm sharing information from agriculture and rural America. Be sure to connect. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time on Farm in the Countryside. Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Piva BioProven. Get what you paid for, the nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com.